cancer sucks. That's not news. But get a cancer diagnosis, and that's a whole new thing. My guest today was one such person, and she found ways to manage her body's response to the chemo, so it impacted the cancer cells and mostly left her healthy cells alone. It's an impressive story with a good ending, and I like good endings. Hello folks, Dan Reed here. Welcome to the Eating Liberty Podcast, food and freedom once a week for life. Martha Tettenborn is my guest today. Martha is an author. Martha is the author of Hacking Chemo, a book about her experience with a cancer diagnosis and how she found a way to avoid nearly all of the side effects of chemotherapy. It will be no surprise that the hack is food-related. Martha is a registered dietitian who fell off the wagon, so to speak, of the approved RD narrative. Now, I must tell you that the following episode is not medical advice. This is the experience of one person and the information that she researched on her own. Do your own research and talk to your doctor if the subject of this show relates to you. Hello, Martha. Thank you for joining me today on Eating Liberty Podcast. Thank you, Dan. It's wonderful to be here. I invited you on today to talk about eating to kill cancer. Now, that's a really bold statement, and I know that we're not going to actually eliminate cancer by food alone, but we're going to find out that maybe we can have a bigger impact than we thought with food and interestingly without food. But that's, <laughs> so that's a big claim. That's a bold statement. So let's get to that. But before we do that, can you give us a bit of a bio and you have a whole book on a bio, but uh, a little bit of a bio about you. Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, so I am uh, Martha Tettenborn. I'm a registered dietitian and I have practiced for over 30 years. Um, I'm Canadian I'm in, in Ontario. Um, and I have spent my career the last 20 years or so working in long term care um, as a consultant. Um, and I've done some private practice stuff. I, um, I graduated at the sort of the beginning of the whole low carb or low fat uh, movement in nutrition, which was like the early 80s, and uh, spent probably the first 20 years of my career trying to teach that and not being terribly successful, either in terms of, um, you know, helping other people or in helping myself. And uh, so... About um, 15 years ago, I sort of dabbled into the world of low carb and uh, discovered that, holy cow, maybe we'd all been wrong. <laughs> um, and so I did some extra certification and started a private practice doing uh, low carb stuff. And that's kind of where I was, just trying to help people with um, healthy, awesome aging, um, getting older without getting sicker. Uh, using low carb and, and ancestral health sort of principles. And um, about four years ago, I got uh, gobsmacked by the uh, finding an ovarian cyst that turns out to be cancer. So, uh, so that was rather 
a major um, sideline for me. So yeah, I uh, I wasn't just going to toe the party line totally on um, treatment. And so because I was already deeply into the world of low carbon and uh, ancestral health and a different approach to health, I, um, I ended up doing a deep dive into what I could do to help myself through the process of cancer treatment. And that's where I discovered the world of cancer metabolism, which I had never heard of. And that made me angry that as a veteran dietitian, I had no idea that there was these nutritional um, components to cancer even, and that there was things you could do to impact on your cancer uh, outcomes um, based on metabolism. And metabolism is about fuel usage and fuel usage is about food. And that's my shtick. That's where I live. Right. Um, so I did a whole bunch of research and developed a protocol to help myself get through chemo and was amazingly successful at that and ended up starting a blog and eventually writing a book. Well, the phrase that really caught my eye. So we, we are in the I've mentioned on the show to the listeners, the thing called Podmatch. And, and you wrote cancer metabolism. I said, wait a minute. What? This, so the idea alone was a fascinating idea. And, and, and so I read your book, Hacking Chemo. It was the name of your book, a well-written book, very good explanations about some of introductory explanations about how energy works with turning fat into fuel. And we're not going to go, <laughs> it's a whole show. We're not going to do that show today. Um, but good information for the, for the reader to figure, or listener to, to be a reader and find out what's going on. And also, uh, getting into some of the things we're going to talk about, which is the, the metabolism of cancer. Now, I don't know if I'm extra special in the I know people who had cancer department, but my younger brother and both of my parents uh, have died from cancer. Both grandparents, three out of four grandparents died from cancer. One died from Alzheimer's. And... There's so it's and, and a sister-in-law survived, so there's a lot, and I think probably mm-hmm. everybody. I don't think anybody is spared not knowing somebody who has had cancer, and and a lot of times we think that that's older people. I a friend of mine has a four-year-old granddaughter with cancer, which is just just terrible. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to talk about how to how to manage our lives to either reduce the risks of cancer to begin with or manage what we've got in case some of us do have cancer. Um, Now, there's a lot of ways to go. And one of the things I want to start with is when we're talking, we're going to get into what kind of keto means. And then we, and, and there's, there's the real adherent, the real you know, militant, almost keto folks, and then there's other folks who are well. We we can we can we have a little bit of wiggle room, but I think the first misconception is that keto is expensive, and you have to hire you have to have the best ingredients, and and you mentioned in the book the the phrase that even that made me angry reading cook magazines is find the best ingredients you can. Well. 
how hard do I have to look? Where do I have to go? Do I have to get in a plane to fly to Sicily to get the tomatoes that make Italian tomato sauce? And if I can't get those, do I not make tomato sauce? I mean, there's there's a lot of pressure on finding the best ingredients you can. Well, yeah, all yeah, I really I have you. is the grocery store. So the best I can get is what's here. How hard do I have to work? So are we looking for $20 a pound lard and $7 a pound European butter and Wagyu beef? Or can I just use the stuff out of the store? And so let sort of break that down. What is the best we can get? What What's acceptable? What should sure. we avoid? Yeah. So a keto diet is simply a way of eating that encourage, that is low enough in carbohydrates that it encourages your body to produce an alternate fuel called ketones. It's nothing dangerous. It's nothing abnormal. We are, babies are born in ketosis. I mean, it's a normal, natural state, but we really didn't understand it until recently. And the only thing that most medical professionals know is that when a type one diabetic is in a crisis, their body has incredibly high sugar, no insulin, and high, high, high levels of ketones. And that's a, a life-threatening situation. So a lot of people think ketosis is a dangerous, bad thing, but it's not. It's how we were meant to fuel ourselves. It is the water-soluble version of the fuel that comes out of your own fat stores. That's basically all it is. We have to have a water-soluble fuel. And glucose, blood sugar, is a water-soluble fuel. Fatty acids are not water soluble. If you think about oil and water, right, they don't mix. But our liver can make uh, water soluble molecules called ketones out of our fatty acids. And that's what supplies the parts of our body that need a water soluble fuel, particularly the brain, um, because fatty acids can't get through the blood brain barrier. So first of all, ketones are normal and natural. It's not absolutely necessary that your body be in ketosis all the time. Um, there are diehard keto people who will want to be in ketosis forever. I look at it as being um, a really valuable and powerful tool that you have as one of the tools in your arsenal for health, right? Um, when I was going through cancer treatment, it was an, an extremely important part of how I got through that cancer treatment was to be in ketosis for basically the whole six months that I was doing chemotherapy. And, um, but I don't live there now. That's not where I feel that people need to be all the time. But having said that, um, a low carbohydrate diet is a good place to kind of spend most of your life. And that would be just um, not eating carbohydrate rich foods five or six times a day, which is the normal North American pattern and using carbohydrates that um, are so highly processed that they just blast into your bloodstream without hardly any digestion required. And they make your blood sugar shoot way up, which then makes your insulin levels go way up, which has all kinds of health consequences. So having a diet that, that, limits that sort of um, glucose excursions into, you know, stratosphere and insulin in, in increases up into the stratosphere. If we can avoid that stuff, um, our overall health uh, of our body is, is much better. So I always tell people, um, 
there are things that you can do no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what your financial situation or what kind of access you have to food. There's always things you can do to, um, to make your diet healthier and to promote better health in your body. And if you have to buy all your meat out of Walmart, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you can still eat well. Um, if you can, you know, if you happen to have access to a farmer who's doing regenerative agriculture and growing grass-fed beef and, you know, and you can afford that and you can you have a car so you can drive out to the farm and pick it up. Like there's so many different parts, right, to food acquisition. Um, then great. But a lot of people don't have that. And you, and no matter who you are, you can, you can start making changes that will improve your health. Um, in terms of sort of the, the clean keto versus dirty keto, as they call it, or lazy keto, all that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of that has to do with, um, the use of processed foods among other things. So there will be keto adherents who say, you know, everything has to be grass fed, uh, grass fed meats and, and, you know, God help you if you used anything that contained a grain and all that kind of stuff. But none of that's really necessary. You can, you can buy wonderful low carb bread products that are made using the gluten, which is the protein in wheat. And as much as people go, ah, gluten, ah, you know, it's gluten is a protein. It, it bothers some people, other people it doesn't. And um, the gluten is what gives the stretch to bread, the, the elasticity, as I'm sure you know. So um, if you use one of these low carb products where only the, the protein part of the wheat is being used, you're not getting the starchy part and, and it becomes a low carbohydrate, but really nice bread. People using clean keto or the, you know, the diehard sort of blinded, you know, must be this way sort of people will not necessarily want to do that. But for someone who um, is struggling for perhaps with, with um, being an adherent, because it is not these is certainly not the normal diet, therefore, it's not the easiest diet to stick to for some people. Um, then having bread alternatives, cracker alternatives, pasta alternatives, those are really important for making your meals look normal. Um, and, and, you know, for particularly if you're feeding a family, feeding kids, uh, feeding seniors who have eaten a certain way for their entire lives and really don't want to give up their bread and crackers and cookies and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, those those things are important. I'm going to make an important distinction since we're so we're talking about carbs, and that's one of three of the macronutrients. The other two are fat and protein. Now, carbs, the, the, the term gets pretty beat up, and there's some gurus that make some very impressive and impassioned claims that sound too good to be true, and but not all carbs are the same. Cauliflower and the donut are both carbs, except what they do, how your body responds to eating those two carbs is vastly different. So I think the important point to make is when keto folks are talking about, or even dietitians or people who are paying attention to nutrition and then to some degree metabolism, when they're saying 
cut out the carbs, what they're really saying is cut out the donuts and the crackers and the cookies and the pie and the cake and the pastries and the danish. And it's like, well, that's the good stuff. Yeah, I get it. You know, as, as a baker and a guy who consumed obscene amounts of sugar, I understand. I, that <laughs> stuff tastes good. But I'm going to get to a part in your book that have you have some recipes that are intended to well, replace isn't really that had that has judgment and emotional attachment to it, but functionally it is an alternative for some of the yes, things that we like so much, including macaroni and cheese with something else, like cauliflower. Um, an interesting way to make ice cream I've never done, and some fat bombs, which I'm going to give it a shot. So, um, in today's world, fake news and disinformation is everywhere. And there is a tendency to immediately reject anything that looks new. And so it seems, particularly with diet, there's a lot going on, but we seem, we collectively, I hate the word, stuck in this Ansel Keys 1970s or earlier paradigm of fat is bad, sugar is good, no salt is good, yet salt is Sodium is critical. No, no sodium. You, you're dead. Um, <laughs> so, as as the nutrition expert, is it right to say that the knowledge base in nutrition is growing at a, an alarming rate? It's almost hard, I think, to keep up with what's going on in the changes in what we think we know compared to what we're finding out. Well, we got derailed. I think that's the biggest problem. Um, you know, our, our grandparents and great-grandparents, I mean, they ate, they ate everything, right? They ate the bread. They ate the potatoes. They ate the meat. They ate the carrots. They ate the, the pies on Sundays. Um, you but know, they, worked. they ate all the stuff and they worked. They exactly. didn't drive desks and sit in front of computers. But they also didn't have processed crap in their, in their world. Like in about the 1920s, was it maybe even before the 20s, um, Procter & Gamble decided to market one of their waste products as an alternative to lard because it looked like lard. And so they created this, this whole marketing campaign about how modern housewives use Crisco. And, you know, suddenly this product that was never part of the human diet before then and that was literally a waste product, became part of the diet. In fact, they worked very hard to make lard sound like it was old-fashioned and not nearly as good. But any any baker nowadays knows that lard makes the best pie crust, right? Also, um, also the best grandma, the best biscuits. Yes. So, um, see, that's a, that's a U.S. thing, biscuits, right? <laughs> More so than Canadian. Um, anyways... So we also didn't have anywhere near the amount of sugar. I mean, our, you know, our parents, grandparents, great grandparents and grandparents, they got sugar, you know, if you were lucky enough to get a 10 pound bag or maybe a 25 pound bag, and that was your winter supply or something. It wasn't sugar six times a day and sugar in all these processed things that also happened to come with um, you know, genetically modified crops or pesticides in the food or artificial colors and flavorings and, and, you know, preservatives in the packaging. 
and then this big load of sugar and these industrial fats, which of course were dirt cheap to produce and very shelf stable. So manufacturers love them. And the more and more and more that this was marketed to people as being modern and convenient. And then of course, mothers left the household to go work out in the workplace. And so they need, they weren't there to bake the pies and therefore they'd buy the pies and the cookies and all that stuff. And all of it is just like this big snowball of, of effects that have all gone together to really, um, you know, what we eat now doesn't look at all like what our ancestors ate. And that's only our immediate ancestors, never mind the ones like from pre-agricultural times where, you know, there wasn't grains in the diet at all. Like we didn't eat the seeds of grasses. That wasn't part of our Paleolithic upbringing. We ate, you know, we dug roots out of the ground and we killed animals and probably ate bugs in the bark off the trees and went, you know, on a bad day. Um, so, so there's nothing about modern nutritional science or modern, modern nutritional science has been designed in a lot of ways to support modern food production. And that's where the problem lies. Um, you know, the, some of the books that have come out in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years about the relationship between the food industry and, um, and nutritional science, they just make you shake your head. Um, you know, the, the big fat surprise, Nina Teicholds and, and Death by Food Pyramid by Denise Minger, like some of those books that talk about how policy and politics and big business has, you know, sidelined the whole, even the field of nutrition science. And then people like me were trained in it. And we tried to help people using that information and, and you know, referring them to processed foods and stuff. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's just wrong, right? We're wrong. So we're now the ancestral health movement, um, you know, which is low carb and there's a whole different, so many different aspects of it, but basically they're saying, you know what, in the, in the 40 years since the American food guidelines came out and were basically adopted by the entire Western world, um, you know, our health has gone to hell in the handbasket and, and we really, something's wrong here. Like somebody look at the big picture and figure it out. And that's where going back to, um, going back to what we were doing 150 years ago before all that processed crap got into our, our food supply. Um, you know, we, we were healthier back then. I think that's, I think that's right. And I know my mother was an RN for years, started, got her uh, graduated school in late seventies. She went back to school after working um, for Chrysler when I was maybe a baby and then before I was born uh, and then housewife for a while. She went back to school, got an RN degree and doctors and nurses even now, I don't think are given too very much in the way of nutritional information. It's pretty much that horrible food pyramid. I think it feels like there's been two weeks on the FDA food pyramid and then now let's go talk about something else. And so what they know about nutrition is next to nothing. Uh, That's absolutely and, true. And, and unfortunately still true. So and I, I think, I'm pretty sure my mother was doing the best that she knew how based on the information she had, but mm -hmm. there's, if she knew then what, what's knowable now, she never would have bought Sunny Delight. Never, ever, ever in a thousand years. 
but that's still I still see kids uh, at volleyball after the game those snacks they're, they're Sunny Delight and Cheetos and Doritos and cheese crackers I'm thinking oh my god these children <laughs> yeah. uh, it's bad so this is a good place to step into cancer's metabolism and it sure now, you you write in your book a little bit about and and it's we're going to talk about if we have the time I want to talk about mindset that. It, it seems a pretty normal thing to think that cancer is this alien invader, so it's me against the cancer. You take a different approach, but let's talk about this cancer as part of you, and really, what are we going to do? How can how does that high bad we're going to we're going to make a judgment call? How does the high bad carb diet literally fuel? cancer and then when we take that away and do fasting what's that doing to the cancer cell okay so we knew in the 1930s or at least there was research being done in the 1930s about the metabolism of cancer and that can um a researcher's name is otto warburg german guy um did research and determined that cancer has a different metabolism than healthy cells. And it uses glucose or blood sugar almost exclusively. Um, it uses a whole different metabolic process, which is much more ancient than the way that our healthy cells um, produce energy. So in a just sort of a high level overview, your each cell, each one of the billions of cells in your body has little engines inside, if you want to call it that, called mitochondria. And the mitochondria holds um, the enzymes of an um, energy pathway that can break down glucose or fatty acids or ketone bodies. They're very flexible, but they will produce um, an energy currency called ATP. So those are the actual little units of energy that your body uses. And it's a very elegant system. They can see them on electron microscopes and stuff, and they're very elegant. Cancer cells have damaged mitochondria. That's one of the things that they discovered. Um, but also cancer uses a different metabolic breakdown process. And this one takes place in the, the fluid of the cell called the cytoplasm. And it's a very rapid um, fermentation sort of process. And it produces instant energy, but it really only works well with glucose. So that's pretty much the only fuel. Uh, it can also use some glutamine or glutamic acid, which is one of the amino acids. But for the most part, it's mostly glucose. And so the, uh, the cells, the cancer cells don't have access to their mitochondria pathway. It seems to be damaged. And they prefer to use this cytoplasmic fermentation. Now, the difference is that um, in a mitochondria, you can take one little glucose molecule and you can turn it into 36 ATP mo um, molecules or ATP energy units. Uh, cytoplasmic fermentation, this, this more ancient system, will take one glucose molecule and turn it into two ATPs. So it's much less efficient, but it's really fast. Um, it's the system that we use if, our, if we have an adrenaline surge, our fight and flight um, response. And so it's, 
it's still there. It's built into us as part of our normal, um, our normal system. But for the most part, we, we don't use it because we use mitochondria in our healthy cells. So cancer has this, this glucose only system. It's not as efficient as regular metabolism. Um, it's kind of a dirty burning fuel when you use it that way in that it produces lactic acid as one of its byproducts. And so then the, the cancer cell has to shoot that acid back out of itself um, and it releases the acid outside its cellular membranes. And so there's a, like a micro environment around the cancer that becomes acidic, which causes inflammation and, you know, more problems. Um, but one of the things that cancer is also incapable of doing is turning itself off. It cannot downregulate its metabolism. So that's one of what they call them the hallmarks of cancer, the, the things that are different about cancer cells. And one of the first one, the main one, is that they do not have an off switch. They have no ability to downregulate their, um, their metabolic processes. So they're hungry all the time. They're always being chemically pushed to grow and divide. That's their, their mandate, their, their, you know, reason for living. And so they're always looking for cancer or for uh, glucose, for sugar to fuel this need to grow. So they need, um, they need glucose all the time. They have extra glucose and insulin receptors on their cell surface so that they can get as much as they can get. And of course they get it out of the bloodstream. So when you eat um, things that are high in sugar or high in carbohydrates, which of course North Americans do five or six times a day, um, you are shooting your blood sugar up after every eating episode. And that is giving your cancer just what it's looking for. High insulin levels in response to that high blood sugar. And it will yank all that, you know, as much as it can out of your bloodstream. And so you're supplying its growth. So one of the things that we do in terms of, of suggesting a metabolic intervention is to um, eat in a way that does not bump up your blood sugar and does not bump up your insulin levels because then you are not supplying the cancer cells with what they need and that stresses them because they don't have an off switch. So they're stressed. And in this case, well, stress almost always is, is a negative on the body, but stressing the cancer cell sounds like a benefit for the host because then if, if it's going into stress, it's less likely to be reproducing itself. That's right. It doesn't have what it needs for growth and reproduction, which is, of course, splitting into two cancer cells. So every, you know, every cancer cell wants to divide into two daughter cells and grow in an uncontrolled way. And that's what it's not getting the fuel for when you keep the, um, the blood sugar and the, and the insulin levels low. Having said that, you cannot have zero blood sugar. Just putting that out there. Um, zero blood sugar means you're dead. <laughs> so, um, and you can't have zero insulin either. That way goes death either as well. So um, it's a matter of keeping it low and stable without excursions into high sugar ranges. Um, that's, what, that's what stresses the cells. And then the cool thing is that when they're stressed, that makes it harder for them to resist a treatment. 
So uh, one of the main researchers nowadays is Dr. Seyfried, Thomas Seyfried from Boston College. And he has a theory he calls the press pulse theory. So you apply a press or a pressure to the cancer cells through the ketogenic or low carbohydrate diet. And then you pulse it. So you hit it with the treatment while it's stressed and it makes the treatment more impactful or more um, effective. Uh, and and it's a it's a really neat idea, and, and he's done some amazing research that supports that. I'm I'm having a a Star Trek geek moment where it's sort of like when the cancer cell is full up on glucose, its shields are high. Give it some stress, the shields are low, so it's going to take that photon torpedo hit with some more damage. Absolutely. You got it, Scotty. It's a, it's a, thank you very much. It's a, it's a very niche crowd, but I think I probably have some of them here. Um, I watched all those episodes. I'm so with you. <laughs> all right. So let's, I'm going to shift a little bit to human metabolism. And I realize that this is sort of a simple observation, over, glossing over a very complex process, but by exercising, and improving the host's metabolism, does that have an active interference also on the cancer metabolism? You know, there's some really interesting research going on right now on the role of exercise in cancer treatment. Um, I mean, exercise will burn energy, like as your, as your body moves. Um, but there's actually research being done. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the man's name now. It's not coming to the front of my brain. But anyways, um, he presented at a, um, a conference I was at in May about using actual strength training exercises for women with breast cancer and having better outcomes because of the use of exercise. Um, so yes, there is an impact. We are still in the baby step stages of figuring out what that exactly is and what the mechanism would be. Um, but certainly an interesting area of research as well. But, okay, so even that aside, there's, now, not having had cancer and only seeing its its impact on other people, it, it mm -hmm. appears, and maybe it's the cancer, maybe it's the chemo, maybe it's the radiation, maybe it's a combination of all these things. It, it seems that at some point, lifting a finger is the most gargantuan task to be done in that particular day. And so I understand that there might be limitations, but the, the act of moving, the act of physical exercise does still, even without impact on the cancer, does do something beneficial to the body. And if I'm going to let the listeners know that while you don't have to be stressed about eating a keto diet because you don't need to spend $100, $120 a pound on beef, you don't also need to go to the gym. In fact, I would recommend don't go to the gym. Gym owners are going to be mad at me because that's their bread and butter. There, there are lots of YouTube videos on how to do a good callus, you know, think Jack LaLanne, for those of you old enough to remember, Jack LaLanne lived to be about 500 years old and was fit as a fiddle. Well, maybe not 500. Um, so body weight, just huge push-ups and sit-ups and jumping jacks. 
Your own weight is enough resistance and gravity. Walk, walk rapidly. Take the dog out. The dog will be thrilled. Um, There's lots of activity that can be done without going with, without barbells and machines and all kinds of things. You know, it's just, those are, they might be useful, but they don't need them. Um, That's my little PSA. (laughs) I hear you. Um, Actually, the, a lot of the benefit of exercise, I think, especially in the middle of cancer treatment, is, uh, is mental and emotional, because not only are you um, getting up out of your chair or off your bed or whatever, um, but you have this, this sense of self-empowerment when you do something physical. And I think, especially if you can do it outside. Because then you're out in nature and you're connecting with the outside world and fresh air and a lot of things that vitamin D um, that are yeah are good 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 for you um, physically and mentally right so I mean I in the middle of chemo I went snowshoeing <laughs> that's work yeah it's definitely work it's definitely work um, it was January uh, February something like that and and you know fresh snow and and we live outside of the city, so we have we can literally go out our front yard and head into the neighbor's acreage and and do some snowshoeing. So I mean, it was very slow, um, but we were out there and we did it. And just the fact that I was outside, breathing that cold, fresh air, and doing something that is part of my normal life felt so freaking good. I mean, we, my husband took pictures, we posted it on Facebook. It's like under the toque, I'm bald as a pinball, but you know, I'm out there and I'm doing stuff. And that was mentally and spiritually such a good thing. So that's for a lot of people, exercise is just, I mean, an exercise can be something entirely functional. It's like, you know, if you have the energy to go out to the end of your mailbox or the end of your driveway and check the mailbox and come back, maybe on the day after chemo, that's that's exercise, you know, but at least right. you got up and you did something. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all uh, it's all very um, relative. I'm going to come back to the point of I'm going to call the whole thing mindset and I'm going to talk about that. But before I do that, I want to let's finish off. <laughs> let's finish off cancer. Um <laughs> Good Tell luck. me, yeah, good, yeah, indeed. Um, I, I learned. I mean, I knew something, but you really brought. I didn't. I had no idea that was just you know the one, stages one through five. Then it not only has numbers, it has alphabet. Like my God, this is too much. And there's soft and there's hard and squishy and who just crazy. Um, tell me about the superpower of fasting. Oh yeah, so. The I guess the most important thing that I learned when I did the deep dive into what can I do for myself was I discovered the work of Dr. Walter Longo, who is a researcher in California, uh, one of the University of California um, campuses. I forget which one. He's a longevity researcher. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, he was doing a lot of research on cancer and cancer in the metabolism of cancer in everything from like single celled organisms and little worms all the way up to mice, all the way up to humans. And he was the one that, that looked at what happens when you actually stop eating. Um, and what kind of stress does that put on the cancer cell? Does it 
impact positively or negatively on the on the treatment that you then give the cancer. And what he found was, like Thomas Seyfried, that um, that cancer was stressed by this lack of fuel, um, and then you hit it with a treatment, and it makes the treatment more um, more powerful, which was very cool. But the other thing that it does is it vastly limits the side effects. And there's a really good reason for that. And, and when I even when I was writing the book, I didn't realize how important it not only the impact of the fasting on cancer cells, but what really makes a difference is the impact of fasting on your healthy cells. Okay, so we said cancer didn't have the ability to turn itself off. It's always got an on switch. It has to have that fuel, hungry, hungry, hungry. But healthy cells are, we have this genetic ability to downregulate our metabolism when we don't have fuel coming in. That's when we start accessing our fat stores. That's when we start making ketones. That's when our brain sharpens up because, you know, in, in 2 million years ago, that's when you had to actually go out and kill something. You couldn't just roll, you know, lay down on the ground and roll up in a ball because you didn't have food. Like you would, you know, we would never have survived as a species. We'd never have gotten off the savanna. But we sharpened up our, our tools when we were in a fasted state and we went out and we killed something. So we had the ability for intensive activity. We had the ability to be really, you know, focused and so on. Um, but the, the cells themselves your your body cells will will slow down in the absence of fuel so they actually put themselves into kind of a quiescent mode um, where they do some internal housekeeping but there's no active growth and and stuff happening and i call it stealth mode because basically when you take chemotherapy chemotherapy is a poison it's a drug powerful drugs they're, they're basically poisons that are designed to kill a cancer cell faster than they kill the host. Um, and I mean, that sounds really brutal, but, but basically they will affect some sort of process in the cell. And so hopefully the cancer cells get hit harder than the, than the healthy cells. And most of them are kind of a blunt weapon that's pointed at a particular chemical process or biochemical process that is a, a marker for fast metabolism. Because again, those cancer cells can't turn off. So if you can make your healthy cells not broadcast fast metabolism, then they literally get bypassed by the drug. The drug doesn't find them because they're not actively metabolizing. And so the drug just kind of flies right over them and heads for those cancer cells with the big red flashing lights that are, you know, broadcasting their, their metabolic rate. And when the chemo doesn't hit your healthy cells, that's when you don't have side effects, right? So if you think about a normal adult human body, we don't have a lot of cells that are in active growth mode at any time because we're adults. We're in maintenance mode for the most part. But our hair follicles are growing and producing new material all the time. Our bone marrow is producing all of our blood components, red and white blood cells, immune system cells and stuff, platelets, that's all grown in our bone marrow. So that's happening all the time. And the lining of our GI tract is turning over all the time. 
So those are the parts of our body that are actively growing at any one time. And they are the parts of our body that get hit with the side effects, right? So by slowing down your body, the healthy cells in your body, you actually reduce the severity of side effects from the chemotherapy. So not only is the chemo more impactful on the cancer cells, but it's less impactful on your healthy cells. So I went through six rounds of chemotherapy with two different drugs for um, ovarian cancer, and it was not expected to be easy um, based on what I had read. And it was expected to be cumulative, meaning that each treatment that I went through would be tougher than the one before in terms of side effects. My experience was that I fasted through all six treatments and I would fast for um, 36 hours prior to treatment and 24 hours after treatment to quiet down my cells and then keep them quiet for the first 24 hours after the drug was in the system. By doing that, I had zero throwing up ever. I had almost no nausea. I had no uh, peripheral neuropathy. I had no nerve damage to my fingers or toes, which was um, a possible expected side effect. Um, I was never horizontal. Uh, like I never had to spend a day in bed or anything like that. I was I was in a recliner in my living room and I would get up every hour or two. And like I said, I might make it out to the mailbox and, you know, or empty the dishwasher or something like that. Um, I never missed a meal. I never missed eating a meal that I didn't plan to miss from fasting. In fact, I never missed making a meal because in my house, that's my job. I, I'm the cook. Sometimes it was just bacon and eggs for supper, but, you know, <laughs> I made it. Supper. It's a good supper. It sure is. Um, and I mean, I lost my hair. Um, I was I was bald after two weeks after the first treatment, which is pretty normal. And um, um, yeah, I, it was it was an amazing experience. And each round of chemo got a little easier than the one before. So the drugs they give you for after chemo, which are to help keep the side effects down. I took less and less of them with each treatment. By the by, the sixth treatment, I was taking almost zero um, post chemo medication. I just didn't need it. It was it was freaking amazing. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I just I and and that's the other part of like how come everybody doesn't know this? Like people need to know that they have this power to not be a victim of chemotherapy and not feel like crap. And, you know, yeah, it was, it was amazing. That's what started me on the blog, which then led to the book. And uh, it's like, people need to know this stuff. They need to be empowered. Well, they don't need, they need to not be victims to government mandates about what to eat and USDA and FDA, which you made an interesting point that even though that's, technically limited to the U.S., it seems to have a far greater reach than just these 50 states. Oh, absolutely. The entire Western world, I mean, the Canadian guidelines, the Australian guidelines, the British guidelines, all of Europe, like certainly everywhere English speaking, followed the same guidelines when they came out in the 1980s. <sighs> yeah. It's too bad. <laughs> and companies like Coca-Cola are in every corner of the planet. I mean, I've been I've been on the top of a mountain in the back 
backwoods of Guatemala and there will be a tienda, little tienda, and it will be selling Coca-Cola. You can't get away from it in about <laughs> 600 size bottles. Yeah. Gee whiz. Um, <clears throat> all right. So there's two more big points and then I, I have a different part of the show. Um, there's, there's two things that I think are really, really, there's a lot of that's really important, but one thing that Dr. S mentioned to you when you brought up, and we've talked about it here and I've hinted at it, and that's mindset. Now, Dr. S told you, make a decision, own that decision. You've yes. made it, stick with it, no matter what it is, no matter how hard it is, no second guessing. So that's part of mindset, but there's also do something. The mindset of feeling like a normal person-ish, walking to the mm -hmm. box, self-empowerment to empty the dishwater. Hey, that could be a really big task, but you did it. So how, it seems plain, but tell me about how this, what Dr. S's statement to you meant and how mindset really does help positively impact the host, the human in the, in this cancer fight. Yeah. So I struggled mightily with accepting the, um, the standard of care for ovarian cancer, which was to have further surgery, which is to have an, a full hysterectomy. And, um, I really didn't want to do it. And I had to be kind of struggled along to the point where finally I said, Oh, okay. And it felt like somebody was ripping it out of my mouth, you know, but once I said it, the doc said, you know, you've made that like right decision. And I, I had, I had, um, done a lot of kind of thinking, a lot of research, a lot of trying to access my intuition and my gut feeling. And finally I made that decision and he's, he sort of looked at me and said, okay, now don't, don't go home and just be second guessing that. Like, that's a decision. You've made it. Go with it. And um, and and that that mentality stuck with me because I didn't make any decisions um, like flippantly or without proper knowledge, and certainly not without looking within myself, which involved prayer um, and. Um, introspection and quieting myself so that I could hear my, what was my inner voice was saying um, so that I could feel like when I did make the decision, it was the right one. But the other big aspect of, of, you know, my mental place was that I refused to be a victim of this and I wanted to be empowered. And, you know, a lot of people, when they get a cancer diagnosis, they just kind of, they turn their brains off and they go, okay, doc, tell me what to do. And I wasn't willing to be that person, which of course goes back to being part of the low carb movement and all that sort of stuff that, you know, I already was a renegade um, in terms of my profession and, and, you know, a lot of my thoughts around that stuff though it's, you know, it's science-based, it's evidence-based. I don't feel like I'm out there in, you know, la-la land or, or putting blinders on to the, the big wide world. I've looked at a, a lot of things. So I wasn't willing to be that victim. And I wasn't willing to be a warrior, uh, you know, the cancer warrior image or fighting cancer. Um, 
being a warrior is very stressful. <laughs> it's like being in battle readiness all the time. And, and that's not good for your health either to be in that, that stressed place. I wanted to be in a place of, of kind of peace and, and self-love. And so that's really how I approached it. Um, and I really feel that that was important um, to my mindset as well. Um, so yeah, it really, it's important to listen to the universe, however you, however you define that, you know, in my upbringing, that was called God. Um, but everybody has their own way of, of thinking about that universal energy. Um, and, uh, and listening to the wisdom of your body, um, and then taking what comes at you from the outside, which is, you know, doctor's opinions and test results and probably like your mother-in-law's opinion or whatever, right? All those things um, and run them all through that filter of what's my body telling me? What's the universe telling me? You know, quiet yourself down enough to hear that inner voice. Right. When my brother was sick, he was at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center a lot. And my sister-in-law kind of lived in the waiting room and slept for months on end in one of those very uncomfortable reclinable chairs. And, mm. and, and when my mother and my father were both sick, they were at my, they, not together, but at their time, were at my sister's house. And there's... There's a very valuable, highly critical aspect, person, people to the cancer person. And, and that's the person who gets a lot of the attention overlooked mm, very totally. often are, is the caregiver or the caregivers. And, and, how, and it, I don't want us to have a talk about cancer and omit the value, the significant contributions, caregivers provide. And I, and I know that you mentioned that in your book and, and certainly your husband, you mentioned a couple of friends, but, but give your, <laughs> give, give caregivers their shot out here. Absolutely. You, um, yeah. One of, one of the chapters in the book is about developing your circle of care and, um, and finding the people who are going to support you through a cancer journey. Um, and, and often they're not the people that you might think they are, <laughs> you know, or that you would expect to be the ones next to you. Um, uh, you, you don't know what someone else's personal journey is. So you can't judge someone for needing to step back from a situation for their own protection. Um, I was surprised that there were some people that just kind of, I didn't hear from them through the whole thing you know, through the whole cancer journey sort of thing. They just kind of fell away. And I don't judge people for that because I'm not in their shoes. Like maybe seeing a friend, someone your own age even, going through cancer is just, it hurts too much or it it's because of their own life experience. Like you say, with your brother or something like that. Um, and other people that, you know, who would know, they, they step forward and they become something that's you know very supportive that but they were just like on the periphery of your life prior to this but hopefully someone going through cancer will have at least one or two people who are like their rock solid you know by their side sort of people like your sister-in-law like my husband 
Um, I call him my rock. Um, and, and he did this, I mean, we've been together since we were teenagers. So like a long time. And he did this, this fine dance between helping me when I needed it, but not smothering me with care because I don't do the smother with care thing very well. Um, my mother died when I was 18 of breast cancer. And so, um, and she was ill for several years prior to that. So I'm a, I'm a pretty crustily independent sort and I don't get, I'm, I, I can't be fussed over. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and, you know, he, he knows that. I mean, he was there by my side. And if I needed a hand, he gave me a hand. But the rest of the time, he let me do things. And, uh, and I, I needed to be able to say, can't do that today. Can you do it? And he would step in no problem. But, um, yeah, so any sort of, any sort of chronic... Um, or acute sudden illness like this requires requires a support system, and it's really important that you build that build that in. And they need to support things like your your nutritional choices, your dietary choices. You know, having there were people that would bring us food, and it wasn't something I could eat. It would be like a casserole or something with you know um, pasta in it or something. But I said that's fine. Like, thank you so much for your caring. And Mike will be happy to eat that. (laughs) Like feeding my caregiver was just as important as feeding me. Like, thank you very much. So, yeah. And and then I had other people who kind of said like, okay, we wanted to have you over for dinner. And they'd literally get on the internet and find keto recipes. And I'd get to their house and there'd be like asparagus wrapped in prosciutto or something wonderful, you know. Nice. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really great. Um, to have those people in my world as well. Very nice. Well, the it, it can take the the caregiving can depending on how depending on what's going on with with, with the patient can be excruciating and and yeah. and and so they they need not be overlooked. They need care and attention too. And sometimes they need a break. So it's it's hard work. It's 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 draining. It's as draining as being the cancer patient, but it's just harder to see. And it's, it's well, and you don't you don't get any of the the perks. <laughs> no, you, you don't, don't get no no doctor comes to look at you. You don't get poked and prodded and wheeled around. No, and you just get you get called like mom or husband or like you, you don't even have a name, right? A lot of the time in in the medical setting, right. I, I'm the mom of a special needs child who had, you know, seizures and stuff from the time he was a year old. And so I have been mom in the medical setting for 30 years. So I get it, you know, that, that the support people are not the patient. And, uh, and that's why it was really important for me to highlight in the book and in when I get a chance, how important those, those people are. Very good. Well, yes. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast.
Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Uh, all right, so I'm gonna. This is a slightly different part of the show. Um, just kind of a little quick fire, some some questions and answers. Of the five flavors, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, or umami, which one is your favorite? Probably salty and umami. What's your favorite food? Oh, cheese. What's your least favorite food? Oh, I don't know if I have one. Ah, uh, Coke, pop. Blech. What sound do you love? The wind it leaves. What sound do you hate? Car horns. What gets traffic. you excited? Yeah, traffic's popular. What gets you excited? Good weather, <laughs> sunshine. Um, Waking up in the morning and looking to the east and seeing the sun, knowing turned, it's a, another good day. And waking up is a good day, yes. What turns you off? Negative people. If you could cook for anyone, ever, dead or alive, who would it be? My mom. She's been gone since I was a teenager. Fifteen and a half years for me. Uh, and it still seems like yesterday. Hard, eh? Yeah, it really yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's your favorite food indulgence? <sighs> Ginger snap cookies. Ah, that's a good one. Maybe Reese's peanut butter cups. Miss Vicky's extra salty chips. Like the extra, the kettle cooked chips. Yeah. I got a few. Yeah, that's all right. We've mentioned your book. Tell us about your book. And also, uh, can how can people follow you? Okay. The book is called Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting, and a Kick-Ass Attitude to Power Through Cancer. Isn't that a great title? I can it's see you awesome title. It is. It's a great title. I like it. Yeah. Love it. Um it's available Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, Chapters in Canada. All of it's wide distribution. Apple Books. It's an ebook or a print-on-demand paperback. It's partly my story, partly the science, um, the fat, the chemo fasting protocol, and some recipes and stuff um, that helped me through through cancer. Um, I also have a blog and a website at marthatettenborn.com. Okay. Um, so that's, and there's, there's links to the book sale there as well. I do some private counseling. Um, I call myself the cancer doula because a doula is a medical person who helps somebody going through a medical process. They don't provide the treatment. If you think about a birth doula, she's there for the mom. She doesn't deliver the baby. She's there to support the mom. So a cancer doula is someone who supports somebody going through the cancer process. And that's 
what I do. And there's a work with me page there if anyone's interested in, in that sort of support. Um, and I have a, a Facebook page called Hacking Chemo as well that I throw things up on. Oh, very week. good. So I'll put, yeah, a, uh, put a link to the Facebook page and your webpage on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 215. Uh, I know that I've gone, I've shot your budget, all the smithereens. Uh, can I impose upon you for a little bit more time for a part I do for the uh, Patreon supporters? Yes. Okay. Go for it. Well, we're going to pretend to say goodbye here. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. You have been a really interesting host. I enjoyed well, this. I, I like that. That's good news. All right, folks, that's going to do it. As mentioned, I'll add the links to Martha's Facebook page, her webpage, and her book on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 215. It has snowed here and the plants are dead. I guess that means winter is coming. Winter means big pots of hot food. Make big pots of hot food with recipes from my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort. Find that on Amazon or use the link at culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you listening. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters. Martha's Chef's Table Portion is up on the Patreon, and you can listen to that when you become a patron. Find the link on the show notes page. Please share this episode on your social media feeds. This is important information that too many people, sadly, can use. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. This is going to come out um, not this Monday, but Monday next, and I have the, oh, 7th probably, because 31st is Monday. Yep. Right? Halloween's okay. Monday. Do you have Halloween in Canada? Oh, yes. Oh, that's good, I guess. Uh, giving away fried <laughs> deep-fried bacon. <laughs> No, no, but there's a big there's a big bag of uh, Reese's peanut butter cups downstairs in my oh, cupboard. Man, that's I'm I'm getting much better at not eating the kids' candy, but I do have uh, chocolate chips are one of my weaknesses still. Chocolate <laughs> chips and peanut butter with extra good salt. Um, so peanut I'm gonna stop. Chocolate match made in heaven. I mean, yeah, it admit is. it, right? So the Trader Joe's chocolate uh, peanut butter has 10 percent powdered sugar added to it. Why would you do that, you idiots? Um, I know. And 